You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. And for all the guests to Citizens this morning, my name is Darcy. I'm the pastor here. It's great to see um, each and every one of you here. We're glad that you're with us. And if you have any questions about our church, you can go to our website, citizenselmira.ca. You can find out um, the basics about our church, or if you want to email someone, you can hit the links on that page, or you can talk to me today if you want. If you have questions, I'm happy to answer them. Um, if you have a Bible, and I encourage you every week to bring a Bible with you. My preference, just so you know, is a print Bible, okay? Bring the old school. You can get one pretty easily on Amazon. And we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we just heard the passage in Mark 9 read, and we're going to look at that in some detail this morning. In the early 1500s, Raphael was commissioned by the Vatican to paint a painting. And there was a number of great works that were being done at that time. And the one that Raphael, this famous painter, was asked to paint was on the Transfiguration. So you can still go to the Vatican today, or maybe not today, tomorrow. You could go tomorrow, catch a flight there, and you could see this beautiful painting, which this amazing moment where Jesus... And James and John and Peter, who are on the bottom here, are seeing Christ in all of his glory. And they're seeing Moses and Elijah present there as well. But if you zoom back, actually, at the full picture that is painted, you'll see that Raphael actually captured the whole chapter. This, like, amazing vision of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then you can see at the bottom of the painting, on the bottom right, the demon-possessed boy. This imagined scene of a father with his son, and you can see the confused disciples around him. And what Raphael is capturing here in this painting is the challenge, probably that all of us face at different times, where we see and experience maybe the reality of theological truth and of Christ. But then when it comes to our regular daily living, maybe our Monday mornings, it doesn't always seem to fit together. Or maybe there's even times where we definitely don't think that it fits together. And here in this painting, Raphael captures both sides of what we're seeing. So you may leave a sermon, or you may leave a Bible study, or maybe you even read a time of reading in your scripture, and you're wondering, how does this actually connect with my life? And how does this connect with the, with the chaos and the mess of the life that I live, and the experience that I, that I have? And so in our passage today, as we look at the second part of, or the middle section of Mark 9, we're going to see this entering into what I'm calling chaos. And we're going to look at three things, really easy to remember if you're taking notes. These are the three points here, okay? Jesus and the chaos, Jesus near the chaos, and Jesus defeating the chaos. Let's read again those first Verses in verse 14 of chapter 9, where we see Jesus coming down. 
Verse 14 again says this. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him and asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So here we have from almost from the perspective of the disciples as they're coming down the mountain. Okay, they're, they've just experienced this mountaintop moment. We talked about it last week, and now they're coming down, and they are coming into the chaos of this experience. Where this demon-possessed boy is there. He's foaming at the mouth. All kinds of like crazy things are happening. And the disciples are not making headway on this situation that has come upon them. And this idea of the chaos of the world and the, the, I don't know if craziness or the mess or the sin that is out there comes face to face with the disciples. And Jesus kind of walks into this. And it's something that we see throughout Scripture. If you're a Christian, if you've studied the Bible at all, you know that from the beginning, all the way back in Genesis, right in chapter 1, God miraculously creates the world. He creates people. And there's two things that are existing right in the beginning. There is this chaos that comes from sin into the world. But then there's also this experience of shalom, of peace, of God's order. And throughout the scriptures, as we see the story kind of moving along, we see that these two things are always, in a sense, at war with each other. The chaos, the sin of the world, and the shalom and the peace that God is offering. And from the beginning, right from Genesis, chapter 3 actually, God has this promise put out there of a future coming shalom and peace. And what we've been seeing as we've looked in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus actually, when he is present and when he's living out the the kingdom of God, he's actually that very peace. He's that shalom that has been promised and that God's people are always hoping for. And there's an experience of shalom that can actually happen. But at the same time, we still live in this chaos. We still live in the mess of the world. And so that's why for every single one of us, we can all say our experiences, we have had um, the chaos touch our lives. You can look back at your life. I'm guaranteed of this. Every single one of us can look back at our lives and see difficult things, see hard things, see wrongs that have been done to us, maybe even seeing wrongs that have been done to people that we love, and that even has affected us personally. And so the chaos exists around us, and we are often left with this question, is this what life is supposed to be like? Is this what God has promised to me? And this is what the disciples were experiencing in this moment as this boy has come upon them 
And you can see in the text there, we won't talk about it a lot, but the religious leaders have always kind of been hanging around. They're looking for cracks in Jesus' ministry. They're looking for holes in the foundation of what he's doing. And in this moment, they, they're like animals, right? They see a problem here. They see that the disciples can't handle what's going on. And so they are just on it. And they're trying to work that crack and trying to figure out a way to discredit Jesus and the work of his disciples. And Jesus comes down and in some ways, 19 says, shocked by the unbelief of the disciples. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he says, bring him to me, bring the boy to me. Jesus is like, what am I seeing here again? This unbelief that is prevalent in the minds of these disciples that he has been walking with and that he has been teaching and training. And for those of us who know the Old Testament, this should almost sound like a echo of the Old Testament Exodus story. If you're familiar with that story, we know that it's a, a story of magnificent action by God where he comes and frees the children of Israel. He does these amazing miracles to, you know, have them released from the bondage of their slavery. And God provides for them. They, they leave the Egypt nation, not only as freed slaves, but they're like given everything they need, all the clothes, they got gold, they, had, they got all kinds of stuff. And then God provides a, a road for them to go through the Red Sea and provides food for them and water and then Moses goes up onto the mountain and receives the law from God. And what happens? Man, they choose their own God, right? They're like, okay, Moses is dead. This whole thing is not working out. And what do they do? They choose their own way. And in Exodus 32, God says this to Moses. He says, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And a few verses later, God says, you know what? I think we should just destroy the whole lot. Let's just get rid of them all and start over. And Moses is like, no, we're not gonna, you're not going to do that. There again in the Old Testament, you have God's people seeing his hand at work, seeing his provision. And then like hours, maybe a couple of days of you know, not seeing the same thing, and they have completely lost their way. They've completely chosen unbelief. And this is what Jesus is, is kind of shocked by when he sees the chaos of the boy and the inability for the disciples to actually work within this. William Lane, in his commentary on Mark, he says this, the qualitative overtones in the phrase unbelieving generation suggests that the disciples remain indistinguishable from the unregenerate men who demand signs but are fundamentally untrue to God. Okay, what is Lane, Lane trying to say in regular language? He's saying the disciples in that moment are essentially acting like people who have no idea who God is. They're acting the same as people who've never met or seen the amazing works of God. And yet we know that that's not the case. They've actually been with him. They've actually experienced Jesus in the flesh. I don't know if you've ever thought that, but it's like if Jesus was here, if I could follow him around for three years, I would be like committed. 
I would be clear in what I'm supposed to be doing, and I would be faithful in everything. But, you know, now we're living in an age of faith, so it's, it's a struggle for me. Well, evidently we can see even the disciples. Jesus is gone for like a week up on the mountain and doing his own ministry with the three disciples. And they live like there is no God at all. But let's be honest. Let's be honest for a second here. We would probably acknowledge, if we looked at our own lives, that there have been seasons There have been times, maybe there is a season right now, where our lives look like we have had no encounter with God at all. Where we are doing the very same things that the disciples are doing. Where we're running into hurdles in life. We're running into the chaos. And when that chaos hits us and just like smacks us in the face, Our response and the way that we live our lives is like people who've never known God before. So there's a couple things. On one hand, it shouldn't surprise us because here again we see these guys did it after experiencing Jesus face to face. But on the other hand, we're going to see here that God is gracious to them. Jesus in that moment, though verse 19 maybe sounds like he's frustrated, He sticks with them and he continues to show them and graciously love them even as they live in those moments of unbelief. And so for us, that should also be encouraging because we've probably all lived that way, lived like people who are disconnected from God. Our lives may be looking no different than our neighbors or our coworkers who who don't know Christ at all. And yet we know that we've had those experiences. And so the grace of God continues. And maybe this was forgetfulness. Maybe this was just outright unbelief. It's not really clear in in the story here. But it's, it's definitely something that they didn't hold on to in that moment. And so Jesus continues to show them his own power. Let's go on to verse 20, where Jesus now, he's in the chaos still, but now Jesus actually comes near to it. He comes close to it. Look at verse 20. So he says in verse, at the end of verse 19, he says, bring him to me. Then in verse 20 says, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has, cast, it, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Here Jesus comes near to the chaos. And what we see actually is that behind the scenes of the world around us is satanic and spiritual forces that are at work. Now listen, we are, we are, we like to categorize ourselves as modern Western people, okay? So we don't tend to think in terms of spiritual forces, 
even those of us who are Christians, and I'm going to read some verses here in just a minute, we would acknowledge the spiritual world, but because of our postmodern kind of production mindset, we think in terms of like physical reality, the sciences, things that you can measure and weigh, that is our primary way of thinking and going. So we think of problems, and we can think of physical solutions, Even problems that are maybe in the mind, we think of, okay, you need to go to a psychologist and they'll have some sort of way of dealing with things. And what the Bible actually shows us is that behind the scenes in the world that we live in, behind the evil that is happening in the world that we live in, and we can all point to evil that is existing, there are actually spiritual forces at work. And in this case, it's actually coming right to the forefront. They're able to see it. But in Ephesians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul explains to us a little bit more what the spiritual world is happening, he writes this in verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's saying, listen, here's what's going on in the world around you. There are spiritual forces that are at work in this world. There are some ideas, there are some things that are moving forward that are the result of not just people, but actually spiritual forces behind those people. And so for us to understand the, the things that are happening in the world, we've got to keep this in mind, that there's actually more going on in the world around us. And in this case here in the text, we're actually seeing the spiritual world come really close to the physical world. So this boy is demon-possessed. I was... Just this last year, I was reading a biography of some missionaries who were working in Nepal, David and Nancy Waters. And they worked in Nepal in like the late 60s and in the 70s. So they moved out there into this remote, in these like high up in the mountains among these people who had never heard the gospel before. And here they were as these missionaries going out there, living in this place. And they had their two boys who were with them as well. And in this village, in each of the villages, actually, of this people group, the village would have someone who would be a witch doctor, okay? And then if that witch doctor died, there would be this span of nine years where the spirits would have to find another person to um, possess so that they could be the witch doctor for that area. And so when Dave and Nancy actually moved into this village, there was no witch doctor, but there was this annual effort to find the new witch doctor. And so they would have all kinds of like incantations and do things around the fires at night and other witch doctors would come in. And Dave and Nancy were these missionaries who were just watching this, watching it all happen before them. People getting possessed and spirits kind of attacking people. And then one night... They're in bed after one of these, like, big events that had just happened. And they heard this huge crash in their kids' bedroom. They were like, what is going on? They thought maybe someone had broken in. So they quickly, they rush into the bedroom. And nobody's in there. One of the boys is sleeping. And the other boy is up. And his eyes are, like, blazing like fire. 
And he is like screaming and yelling and talking in like other languages and in a totally different voice. And they were like any of us would be, they were freaked out. And so they kind of calmed him down and they prayed over him and they thought, okay, I hope this was just like a crazy, you know, this was like dinner or something. It was coming up bad. Well, come to find out that every night this continued to happen where the boy would rise up in the night and would have these terrors and would have this fire in his eyes. And they described this in their biography as happening for months in a row, month after month. Similar kind of, and missionaries often experience the a similar kind of experience of what we're seeing in this text here because they are they are on the front lines in a sense of the work of God. They are going into places where Satan has had full hundred percent ownership of different lands and different people groups. And now they come in as like the the front spear of what God is doing. And they often hit this spiritual wall. And that's what's happening in the text here today. These people are hitting this spiritual wall. These disciples are running up against it. God, thankfully, has built into our world ways to hold back the work of Satan around us. So each of us, Paul says in Romans, is given a conscience so that when we do wrong, even when we're not believers, when we do wrong, we know that we've done something wrong against somebody. And so that actually holds people back to a, to a certain extent from doing like total evil. But sometimes that doesn't even work. People, people sear their consciences and they go beyond that. But then God has also given us government, and he's given us family order, all these things to kind of hold back pure, unadulterated evil. If God were to take all those things away, our world would be literally hell on earth. And even when those things fall apart, there are some societies, there's some even right now in the world that we live in where the the governments are just evil, the people are living with seared consciences, and even in those contexts, God graciously holds man back from total, full evil. But God has allowed Satan to have to be some room here on earth. God has allowed Satan to exist and to be. And so here we have face-to-face this sin and the shalom of Jesus coming And the disciples are overwhelmed by it, but Jesus is not. What does Jesus actually do? When Jesus sees the the madness, when Jesus sees this demon-possessed boy, Jesus actually enters in. Jesus actually comes close. Jesus comes near. So he enters and comes close to him. God's people are actually called to come near to those who are living in that kind of chaos. Where the evil of the world is presented, God's people are called to come near, to follow Jesus' example and be near to those things, to shed the light of Christ in that context. And God's people have regularly done that over the centuries. In the first 300 years, the church just exploded in the Roman world. If you're familiar with that history at all, it went from like 
in Acts 1, you've got like 120 believers to it being like the majority of people in the Roman world by like the mid-300s. And one of the ways that the the growth of Christianity was spurred on was by God's people loving and caring and sacrificing for their neighbors. There were multiple, there was, it's noted there was like two or three epidemics that happened in the Roman world in that area. They, they guess it was things like polio and measles that went through. And it was actually the Christians who came near to people who stayed in neighborhoods and cared for those who were struggling with their loved ones dying and church lead children being orphaned. Cyprian, who was a early church leader, wrote this. He said, There is nothing remarkable in cherishing merely our own people with the due attentions of love, but that one might become perfect who should do something more than heathen men or publicans, one who overcoming evil with good and practicing a merciful kindness like that of God, should love his enemies as well. Thus the good was done to all men, not merely to the household of faith. So Cyprian is saying, here's what happened. God's people, they didn't just love their fellow Christians. They actually reached out and loved and cared for people who were outside of the faith. And this is, according to Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, this was one of the key elements for the Christian church to grow because people experienced the love of Jesus. People experienced Jesus coming close. The challenge for all of us is that we are opposite of what easily distracted and maybe to the opposite of what Cyprian says, we are tempted to just be around people who are like us and people who maybe are Christians or people who at least would hide the fact that they have problems. They would have, you know, some sort of a mask on. And so things are just simpler, not, not a real mask, like the other kind of mask, right? Like a fake kind of mask. And so we are distracted by the world around us and we are easily satisfied by these fake veneers that we put on. When Christ is calling us, to follow his example, to be like him with people who are in the margins, people who are suffering, where there are places that injustice is taking place, Christians are called to be there, to be near to people, to bring healing through Christ. And so Jesus here, in this moment, he does not shrink away. He actually goes toward it. Jared Wilson, in his chapter called The Gospel for Losers, I love the title of that chapter, that's great, he writes this, Jesus is extraordinarily merciful to those at the bottom of the barrel. Those are the people that Jesus actually goes to. Those are the people that Jesus actually reaches out to. You see, when, when the man comes to him, Jesus actually, we only have a couple lines of it here, but Jesus actually leans in to kind of know this man's story. He says, how long has the boy been like this? He doesn't just like on the spot heal him. He doesn't recoil away. He actually comes near and he wants to know the story of this man and this boy. And in that coming near to that brokenness, he wants to bring healing and restoration. So Jesus... And the chaos exists. And Jesus actually comes near to the chaos. But lastly, and maybe most important, 
is that Jesus defeats the chaos. Jesus is able to break through. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 says this, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing, convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now when we read this text here, you can almost be tempted to think that if you just like muster up enough faith. You look at the testimony of the the man here. It's kind of like if I can just believe enough, then the greatest problem that I have, God can solve it. Can almost be tempting to think that way. And maybe you've thought that before. You've had some sort of a pressing issue. You've had something that you have asked God for. And maybe you've even thought, okay, if I just believe, like just keep believing, believing, if I get enough belief kind of banked up, then God is going to meet that desire that I have. God is going to answer that prayer. I look at a story like this, and I'm like, this guy just believed, and then Jesus on the spot, boom, took care of it. We can be tempted to think that way. But we see in God's word that both sides exist in the problems that we face, in the chaos that we encounter. On one side, we do see that God actually calls us to lean in and pray and ask him for help. In James chapter 5, specifically talking about sickness here, James writes this, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So James is saying, do you have problems? Do you have even physical healing that needs to happen? God can answer that. God is actually able to do that. Ask people to pray. But yet at the same time, we see that there's times where God chooses not to answer that prayer and where God actually promises that we're going to have difficulty. And maybe the clearest verse, there's a lot of verses that we could go to. Maybe the clearest one I pulled out of John 16, verse 33, where it says, in the world you will have tribulation. Or maybe your translation says trouble. You're going to have trouble in this world. There's going to be difficulty. And so we hold both those together. We don't just think that if we have enough belief, if we pray enough, if we get a thousand people praying about this thing, that it's just going to go away. But at the same time, we don't believe that God can't do anything. God actually acts. God actually wants us to enter into the, the work of asking him to work on our behalf. And in the end, we ultimately believe that his kingdom is stepping forward and that he knows the greater picture where if an answer doesn't come that we 
hope would come that God actually knows exactly what he's doing. That God is infinitely smarter and wiser and greater than any of our greatest minds on the planet. And so what does Jesus point the disciples toward? He points them to prayer. Again, in verse 24, the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a great line, probably for all of us to say. And what you see here is this contrast between the man who's struggling with belief and the disciples who are living in unbelief. And Jesus says the way that you actually begin to live out your belief and live out your trust is through prayer. By leaning into what God has through the work of prayer. And I wrote it down this way, a building a regular rhythm of prayer in your life can look like this four-step process, okay? I don't normally do this, but I just, I thought of it this week. I'm like, I gotta say this. To note it, to quiet it, to plan it, and to do it, okay? You got that? So what does that mean? To note it, to take some time to actually either think about or write down things that you need to be praying about. For me, it actually comes in moments where I've paused to think about it and I actually get out a piece of paper and I start writing and I kind of write and pray at the same time. So to note it down. But secondly, and maybe this is the most important one for all of us, is to quiet it. And, and what I mean by that is quiet this. To put this away. Because if you're anything like me, notifications start coming in within like five seconds and you're gone. Your, your line of thought to God, your prayer is finished. So note it and quiet it. Thirdly is to actually plan it, to build into your day some sort of space to pray and to do this act of obedient dependence on God. Maybe it's your run that you do in the morning or the afternoon. Maybe it's a commute to work that you're starting to do again. Maybe it's just a time in your day when you know that you can carve out 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 3 minutes, whatever it is. And then the last one is to actually do it. How many of us have made plans that we haven't actually followed through on? Okay, so maybe the last one is the most important step of all is to actually do it. You take some time to note down what it is that you want to be praying about. You quiet the noise around you. You make a plan to actually do it, and then you pray. You practice belief in a sovereign God. You practice a belief that God not only is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, not only can you experience his glory, maybe in the songs that we sing here, or the fellowship that we enjoy together as Christians, but he's to be experienced on Tuesday morning at work. Thursday night when your mind is racing because of anxious thoughts. In those moments, God wants to be present. He doesn't want to just be this on-the-mountain God experience. He wants to be on the ground in the chaos, in the hell of your week. God wants to be there. And here's the promise. That in those moments, God actually can come and bring to bear change in your life. 
God can actually do something with the chaos that each of us live in. He can defeat those things. He may not take them completely away, but the defeat, maybe he does something in your own heart. He prepares you in a new way. He strengthens you in a way that maybe you've never had before. And in our story here, the difference is really quick and significant. But for some of us, the difference may be still significant, but it may not be quick. It may come over time. It may come over days. It may come over months. It may even come over years. But God is at work. God is doing something. God is active. In the end here of the story, there's an interesting little note, a little bit of the story that should, uh, should actually stand out to us. After Jesus heals the boy... Everybody looks, if you see at the end of verse 26, everybody thinks that the boy is dead. He's laying there like a corpse. I don't know if he's white. I don't know if his lips are blue. But everybody who's looking at the situation here, they say, this kid is dead. And what Jesus does actually is he takes him by the hand and he raises him up. And this is meant to be a marker for the disciples Because there's going to be a time. Remember a few weeks ago we said that was the shift. In chapter 8 of Mark is the shift where now he's going towards the cross. Everything up until chapter 8 has been rising up to Jesus' ministry. And now it's going towards the cross. And the disciples very soon will see Jesus, just like this boy, hanging on a cross, dead. He'll be white. His lips will be blue. His side will be pierced. And they'll be thinking, just like the people in this crowd, he's dead. Our hope is gone. Let's let's grab a hold of unbelief because it's finished. And yet, what do you see Jesus doing here? Jesus comes, and in this picture for the disciples, this story for them to hang on to, he takes the boy and he rises him up. And he says, the greatest supposed defeat, the one where Satan thinks he has conquered, where Christ is dead, is actually not the last word. The last word is actually a risen Jesus. And in Colossians, Paul puts it this way. And we'll close with this before we do the Lord's Supper. Paul writes this in Colossians of what happened on the cross. He says... And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So remember these these spiritual forces that are at work, that are trying to hinder God's work. They were openly defeated. They were brazenly shamed. And we enter into that same journey that Christ entered into, where we are dead in Christ and are now brought to life. And the power of Christ comes to bear on us as well.